Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and a psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Hey, I don't appreciate your lack of sarcasm. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, it snowed in Houston this morning. Does that mean the climate skeptics were right all along? I I um I'd like to wait for a replication. Uh I don't think this <laughs> well, that's out of character for a social psychologist. I'd like for it to be pre-registered and available materials on the Open Science Foundation in order to really make any conclusions. And we have to also set the Bayesian sort of ex, uh, priors, too. Uh, but no, I can't. It's snowing here, too, actually. But that's normal. Um, it's, it's I, to say the least, not normal uh, here. <laughs> When's the last time it snowed in Houston? I think there were like there was like a little flurry of something 2008, but it actually stuck because of the time that it, it happened, which was overnight. It it kind of stuck on the ground a little bit. I we can I made a snowball. You were, <laughs> yeah. I hit Eliza with a snowball. It was pretty fun. Like it's like cross country skiing to work this morning. <laughs> <laughs> they no, obviously don't know how to handle it here. It's yeah, I mean, I, I imagine there were like twelve car pileups. <laughs> it's like when it snowed when I was at, at Duke for the semester. It would snow one inch, and they'd have to like shut the whole city down. Yeah, which is understandable, you know. Like, they don't have snowplows. Like, why would they? It would be an enormous waste. But, but it was kind of funny. Yeah, I remember um, that too from my time from at your Duke time. University. Somebody was actually asking me about like how we met and when we. It was recalling when you were but a young whippersnapper at grad Duke. student. That's right, at Duke. That's right. And you were and a young was, assistant professor, or were you still? I was a still a post. Student? I was still a post. I was oh, a postdoc post at UC Irvine, and and Jesse Prince actually had put together this this right. conference. So it was through Jesse, who I met through Josh Nope, and Josh so, John Height was there, and Josh Green. Josh Green was there. I th- maybe not. Was I remember Laurie Santos. Gave no, a talk. he was. He was there. He was. Yeah, absolutely he was. There. Yeah, he was. That's right. Uh, Laurie Santos gave a talk. I gave a talk, and. Kim Sterelny, the, yeah. the philosopher of biology. Yeah. And we cool. grad students gave these long openings because Alex Rosenberg told us to, to just like, yeah, you know, take your time to shine here. So I gave this like 15 minute opening like intro for John Haidt. And he was like, he was just expecting me to say John Haidt is the whatever <laughs> professor at University of Virginia. And here I was talking for 15 minutes. I didn't know any better. See now, now but now John would expect at least 15 minutes. <laughs> he's a, he's a big deal. He's a big deal. 
<laughs> Two things. One, we're talking about um, dystopias, our favorite dystopian works of art. This uh, episode in the second segment, and then also Paul Bloom coming on uh, for the next episode to talk about his New Yorker essay on dehumanization. That's right. Yep. I feel like I should say, like I was at the, we, we mentioned in one of our episodes that Paul had won this amazing award of a million Swiss francs. And I was, I was there because part of it was a symposium where uh, there were a few people invited to talk. So, so I, I could, I gotta say, I've never been to a fancier party than that evening when it was like the elite of Zurich. And I had like, I had even forgotten to bring a tie and this was like going to be to my shame. But luckily Paul had brought like eight ties. So, so we got to mingle with the, the all the rich bankers in Zurich. Who was this before or after he made you watch him shower? <laughs> no, that was in grad school. I mean, it would be inappropriate. Now. Like, why would he, why would he want somebody <laughs> It's only when you have a lot of power over somebody that that's fun. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) It's always fun to have somebody just staring at you while you take a shower. Well, they get to point out, you know, like you didn't get behind the ears. You know, you didn't get your neck. (laughs) I find just the utility. You should use an exfoliant. (laughs) Maybe that's You you need to replace your loofah, dude. (laughs) We'll probably talk about this more with Paul, but... Um, a, a listener tweeted us this trolley problem, like real life trolley problem that that uh, some well, I don't know what is it some TV show like British TV show or something. Yeah, um, it's a TV show on you on YouTube Red. Um, it was really like it's, they they have a budget, like they put together. Okay, so anyway, like let's just give the basics of it. They yeah. set up. A fairly convincing, or so it seemed, um, situation where people would actually be in a position where they would think they can shunt the train to hit one person, or else if they did nothing, it would hit five. We won't go into the details. We'll put a link. I'm sure our listeners right. uh, will be interested in seeing it if they haven't seen it already. Um, and then they show the people who are being put in that situation and they we, we get to watch them make the decision. What did you think of it? Give me your thoughts first before I mean I, I, I have a lot of thoughts about it. First first of all, I I, I like I think it's a, it's you know, <clears throat> hopefully people will watch it. It's about 30 minutes long. The amount of effort they did put into setting up this realistic study where people essentially were led to believe that where people were led to believe that they were part of a a study, sort of a focus groupy study, and there was this California Railroad Authority, um, and they were led to believe that they were in a room that actually does run the switch for a train, and they were sort of as part of the script. These were all actors um, that you know they had full on monitors set up. They had actual video feeds of of train tracks. Um, they were shown how to switch how to switch the train um by presumably the actual operator so and they'll see all this like they'll, you know, they'll see all it but it's but to, it's to my point is like very impressive like the, the amount of work that went into setting up this sort of like 
um, ch chamber where you know you could control a, a remote control for for the switch. So I couldn't believe that they did it. Um, they and again they'll see all this. They this is the the huge difference between what they get to do and what we would ever get to do is that we would just never do we would never get cleared by a human subjects committee by by an institutional IRB. And so they, can I yeah. can I say that I literally don't believe that that they did it. I don't believe that that's on the up and up because they did go before an IRB supposedly. And yeah, but the, that the was, IRB has no authority over that. I, I know it has no yeah. authority, but they went before it, and I don't buy that those were real IRB people <laughs> because uh, uh, one of them just says. You no, just, like, <laughs> you're obviously not. We can't let you do this. The other one's like, I don't know. I, you, you know, maybe you should say something about why you, what good will come of it. And he says something like, the host says something like, uh, well, it will show the difference between how people think they yeah. will act and how they want to act versus how they actually act in a situation. And then the guy who had been the one sensible guy who had been who said, oh, yeah, I, this is a bad idea. is like, oh, oh, OK, interesting. Oh, OK, well, uh, then sure. Go ahead. Why didn't well, you say so? Well, I didn't I mean, realize that it could have that benefit. And then they hire some other psychiatrist or clinical psychologist of some kind who's even more ridiculous, who like the whole like everything he says is like so on the nose, obvious, ridiculous, like <laughs> the whole thing and the way it was edited and the fact that we never see the actual people who didn't shunt it. We just get a little quick montage, quick cut of them. We only get the people who who shunted it. I, I think the whole thing is bullshit. I don't uh, buy it. I think they're all actors. Uh, yeah, no, I totally disagree. I mean, I, like, first of all, you can look up the professors at Pepperdine, right? I mean, they, it's obviously scripted. Did you do they that? fit this in. Uh, no, I didn't. But but I have no doubt that, like, they wouldn't just put fake people at Pepperdine. Like, that would be just <laughs> the most obvious thing. And it's obviously scripted, right? they got to fit this in 30 minutes. And they probably had long discussions and they filmed some synopsis, right, of of this what the clinical psychologist said wasn't ridiculous at all. I mean, this is, these are the kinds of things that, that a clinical psychologist would say. They had a neuroscientist, right? Um, and honestly, this is the kind of research that we wouldn't get cleared through human subjects here, I'm sure. But, it, but we put people in all kinds of crazy situations and not even account medical research. The, the, the danger that we put people in for for research that's coming out of medical schools. I have no doubt that they actually did this. I like I I I I don't know. I there was no it's, Yeah. I mean, you, it just seemed idiotic to me. I was going in with the best intentions and everybody <laughs> seemed like a moron. Like everybody who was supposed to be like It was the just host overproduced. Seemed... Right? I mean, it was overproduced, but or badly produced maybe. <laughs> Um, so you think that the that the the so-called participants were faking it? Yeah, that they were like the the reaction of the, of the last guy who pulled the switch. You think was was that was the that was the one that um, I I was thinking. Well, he's a good actor, but so are the other <laughs> actors who are the act. I, I mean, I only came to this conclusion. I didn't think it like the whole time, or even 
I'm not even sure I've thought it before the end, but um, but then afterwards, I just like the the whole time I was watching it with Eliza. And it was like even she was just like what the clinical psychologist was saying was just so ridiculously. Wait, what was ridiculous about it? Like, I don't I don't know. Like, <laughs> maybe we should screen out uh, the the people with post-traumatic stress disorder. And then the host is like, huh? Yeah. Oh, just, but, well, but that's, that's interesting. Yeah, maybe we should. Like, it just seemed like but, a parody. Uh, I I agree that like th- those weren't those can't have been the first time the conversations were had like this had to have been <laughs> produced in such a way but but like the content of what he said is exactly what you would do I mean we would always whenever we were even in in um, grad school doing a manipulation that might make someone feel bad about themselves we had to screen for depression right we like actually would screen. So the content of what the clinical psychologist said, I mean, and like much crazier shit is done on TV shows like Survivor or whatever, like where people, they put people in all kinds of just crazy situations. But those people sign waivers, right? These people didn't sign waivers. I I mean, I'm sure they signed something they, like they have to have signed something. So, but what, what can a waiver possibly say like about like the the in like the first time they ever did survivor it's not like they can say what exactly is going to happen well so i that was another question that i had was so i'm not uh like i i I would say i put my likelihood that the whole thing is faked or to some degree faked at like 40 percent. that's my credence for this (laughs) but um if it's not then what are yeah? What are the guidelines for this? Are there any guidelines? You can really just tell somebody. But that's the thing: as a TV show, there are no guidelines. They're not breaking any laws, right? Is it not? Like, are there no laws against like putting I mean, somebody you could have in UFC fights? Like, you, I mean, I, like there's there. But those people are going into it knowing what they're going into. Yeah, but but these people aren't in any real danger, right? So, so I guess what what so you I, can like, psychologically fuck with somebody like to whatever extent you want, and it's not illegal. I mean, pe- we do studies where we inject people with LSD and and we and, and ketamine, tell them? and well, we tell them that they might be in the LSD condition or not. I mean, but, but that, presumably but they is, agree but that, to but something. But that's a big line right there. Is like w- them knowing that they yeah, like but that's because we have. It, it, internal ethics to like an ethics review board right right like game shows tv they don't like they i don't think there's any law where you where right you well i don't know like this is what i'm asking but you can just psychologically fuck with somebody uh and not tell them that they're getting in for anything like that like Mm -hmm. i mean you could psychologically fuck with anybody as a private citizen as long as you don't actually harm them right that's what they're doing that's all they're doing Right. There's no you could go up to somebody and and pretend to have a heart attack and and die like you're not going to get prosecuted. Right. So then the only thing they had to get them to sign waivers for was to show their or did I mean, they even need to do that? I mean, I, I they probably just needed to sign a waiver that they were participating in something and they were going to be on TV. I mean, this is why they actually were able to to replicate the Milgram study on on a TV show. Right. Yeah. No, I remember. You I've would seen never, that. <laughs> you would never, and you would never be able to do that in a in an actual ethics. So but, I mean, that that's 
that's why I believed it. Um, but I also thought it was pretty genuine. What it says, which I thought is the conversation would go, and maybe we could save that conversation with Paul. Yeah. Like, I don't know what it says about, you know, I mean, I think that the, it's interesting, right? It's, it's certainly interesting. And I think that, that if you take it at face value, the difference between the people who, who did pull the switch and the people who didn't, um, and the sort of deer in the headlights reaction that many people have, I don't know that we know anything new about it because the whole point of the trolley problem is never, it was never intended as to, as a question of behavioral prediction. And I even think that if you asked people, but would you be actually able to do it, even though you think it's the morally appropriate thing to do, people might actually be pretty good at, at saying like, I, I mean, I, I, I think I would have frozen. Would you have pulled the switch? Are you asking me? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to know because you have to get out of your mind that you even know the problem. <laughs> yeah, you, know? you, have to, you have to undo. You your... have to undo that. So in that situation, uh, I, yeah, I have no idea. I honestly have <laughs> yeah. no idea what I would do. I have no idea. I, I suspect that I would freeze and or that I would like just be outside running around to try to find somebody. And then by the time I got back, it would have been. <laughs> yeah, it is funny because that is the one of the biggest objections to the trolley problem is that right. there's so many other things that a person could try to do in that situation. And they really this is what like this part of it. I have no problem fake or not like the way they set it up actually makes it seem like <laughs> yeah. the only that person is the only thing that stands between five people dying him or her shunting the track right Uh, just to give people so there are five total people five subjects oh i think there were seven total like we see and two only two uh flick the switch yeah yeah they show us the they show us in detail the two that flip the switch and maybe there's like four or five who don't we but we see like little weirdly cut montages of of those people. Yeah, but at that point, I would actually have been bored. This is already half an hour long. But then they showed one person who switched it. Why not show an ex- at least one extended version of one person who didn't switch it? D- didn't they kind of the second person that that mm. that woman who who didn't switch it? I mean, they show the relevant parts. Like I don't, mm. you know, you're making I mean, excuses you s- for them. <laughs> I, I, it would have been interesting if they had been able to run up, push, push, push someone to their death. But more, more interesting of all would have been if they had uh, given the names of Tyrone versus Chappelle's <laughs> the third. Oh, God. Right. They should do that with like. That's what five, I actually want to see. Do, like with like five black people on, yeah, the, on the track. Can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, the first woman was was actually black herself. So, was your study not? Were they uh... <laughs> in my study at UC Irvine? Yeah, maybe we had like four or five actual African Americans, um, mostly Asians. I always say that this the study of psychology at UC Irvine was the study of um, Asian, <laughs> Asian and Asian American women. Those were those were all our participants. <laughs> I yeah, so I wish they would have been able to actually do some experimental manipulations, like actually do very something. Because as it was, it was just a demonstration. I can't believe that I'm the only person that had that reaction to it. 
Yeah, I don't know. I'm not. I'm just not shocked. Like you can get away with so much. There was a German TV show where they had like somebody cut a piece of their own flesh, saute it up, and eat it. No, I mean, have... I can't believe I'm the only person that wonders whether the whole thing is rigged. Actually, I'm not because somebody on Twitter also said it. I'm sure um, there are people on the internet who might agree yeah. with you. I just, I, I just don't. What I'm, what I'm trying to get at is your reasons for not believing it. But like if it's that it's scripted, like yeah, I mean, they it seems scripted. Obviously cut, but they obviously scripted it, right? Like I, I assume that this was just the right. And what do Pepperdine psychologists on the Ethics Review Board care what a TV show does? They're probably like eager to be on TV. Like, <laughs> well, they should know. be eager to like seem <laughs> smarter <laughs> than they are, then, or like more responsible than they are. Maybe they just edit out all the smart things. <laughs> We should get what we should actually ask one of those people to be on <laughs> if they exist, which I think is uh, definitely open for question. I would take 10 to one odds that that those people aren't real. All of the all of this fakey scripty stuff you would see in any television documentary where they were trying to recreate a scientific experiment. Right. So would you what, would you see them, you know, the guy interviewing the the clinical psychologist and he's like, would you be willing to work with me uh, if I if I did this? And he's like, that's the huh, part. what? Uh, woo, huh, well, um, uh, OK, yeah, why not? Like, I'll, I'll I just work with you. I just like that. Like, that's such bullshit. You can't tell me but, that's real. But, but, but you're saying just, that's scripted. Saying not, yeah, I'm saying that that, in fact, is not real. But it doesn't have to be the real. Like, they probably had really long conversations about what they were going to talk about. And they're like, OK, let's let's make this conversation into like a two minute version of what we actually talked about. Like, that is so common. I mean, watch any episode of, like, Scientific American Mind with Alan Alda, right? Like, you you know, they have these conversations where it's clear that they agreed, like, what they were going to talk about and the explanation. And, you know, so if that's the part that makes you not believe it, then, then I don't yes. know. But it sounds like the other part is that you don't believe that they would have actually been able to run that experiment. No, without no I, I, I have, again, no opinion on that. I, I, I am, I'm wondering. It just led me to ask, what are the limits of how you can psychologically fuck with somebody? Somebody. But I, it doesn't. It wouldn't surprise me at all if uh, if you were allowed to do what those yeah. people did. I'm, I mean, there are episodes of like punked that that right. put people through pl- like plenty of that, right? Yeah, like, even candid camera or something. Like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so I'm glad that that somebody was able to do it if it is in fact true, because <laughs> you know, finally we get we got somebody to run a real life version, uh, like. I was still impressed at like the station they set up, the way they had like those they rigged the cameras and they had like CGI to make it look like the train was really going to hit the people. Like it's really impressive. But I would be freaking out cuz like the, when it's when the workers walk onto the train tracks and it's like warning objects on the track, warning. Yeah. Ob-, I was like oh, I like I I might be shitting myself a little bit. It was dystopian in some <laughs> ways. <laughs> okay, warning. my last question for you about this and maybe again we'll talk about it more perhaps um is did you think that the people if you believed it um did you think that the people who actually pulled the switch uh were exhibiting a strength of character that set them apart from others i mean it almost seemed like a coin flip even for them so this is the why i would have liked to see a 
like an extended version of somebody who didn't pull the switch? Because then I could answer that question with some confidence. But the way it seemed like is for them is that they just like they were, no, don't do it, do it, don't do it. And then the roulette wheel landed on do it like right at the yeah, point. Maybe. Yeah. maybe they just have no free will. Um, no, I mean like that. That, and I, I, I would think this was how it go. But how do I, how do I know that that's not how the other people also did it? You know, they were like right. kind of putting their hand right on it and then not doing it. And so, and I don't know. Maybe if, if it's real, they wanted to spare these people's, you know, feelings right. or spare them, like make them not look that bad lump them all together so that you don't really but uh um, right yeah although i don't find them you know morally sort of d- disdainful in any way if they didn't pull the switch right like i like I what mean, do you think marked those two people what do you I, answer I, I don't know i all, all i could like i felt as if they were willing like their willingness to act said something about them i just couldn't tell what you know i i and I, I'm curious as to as to whether there's any individual difference. Are they less anxious people? Are they, you know, I, I would be thinking about my liability. Like if I flip the switch, like am I responsible either way by touching it? Who's the uh, Jew between us? You're thinking about your liability? Yeah. I don't know if I would think about it in the moment, but I feel like it would take, I feel like I would have to overcome a lot of, a lot of, uh, inertia against acting in that situation. If it re- if you really saw like five people just get fucked up by a train, I'd be so scarred. That's what they should have done. Showed like some gory, like, like, some, uh, like from different angles, like GoPro angles. And then of, one like, of them like doesn't die. Like at first, like, <laughs> like kind of like survives the initial impact. Why didn't just... they switch? <laughs> Tell my wife, I love her. <laughs> And then, like, the guy on the other track is like, it should have been me. (laughs) It should have been me. Damn you, God. All right. Uh, We'll be right back to talk about dystopias. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Um, first off, we'd like to say to all of those people who have uh, gotten in touch with us, thank you very much. 
We really uh, appreciate your messages, your tweets, um, your Reddit, your Facebook discussions. Um, in this very case, we got an idea from one of you on Reddit. Do we have actually the person to give credit to? We should have written that. Um, I tried. Shit. I... We really appreciate all the discussion. In fact, we, we got the ideas for both segments of, of this episode from, uh, from right. listeners. Uh, Brandon Beckett on Twitter is the one who first pointed us to the, to the trolley episode um, on YouTube. And one of our Reddit listeners on the forum suggested today's topic. So thank you to everybody. You can get in touch with us. Uh, you can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet to us at verybadwizards at peas at Tamler. Uh, you can message us. LFC23. LFC23, thank you, yeah. on Reddit. Uh, you can go on our subreddit, uh, reddit slash r slash verybadwizards. Um, you can even go leave us messages on Patreon, uh, which brings us to the second way in which you can support us that we truly appreciate. If you want to uh, give us a little something to keep the lights on uh, or just to thank us or just because you have extra money, I think it's well spent on a couple of poor academics. You can go to our support page, uh, which is at verybadwizards.com um, slash support. You can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash verybadwizards, or you can, on our support page, donate via PayPal, um, or you can just, especially now, tis the season, if you're going to do a lot of Amazon shopping, keep us in mind, maybe click on our Amazon link and shop yes. as you would normally, and uh, we'll get a little piece of that. It's really, uh, really nice, nice way to support us without much effort on your part. Um, so thank you. Thanks to everyone. I'll go to our Instagram. We also have a very bad wizards account there. We're all over the place. We're like m social media whores. I, we I used to have a Tumblr, but then it, it well, you know, it takes Matt a lot Welsh. of work. Matt Welsh. What happened? Yeah. Where are you, man? We miss you. <laughs> <laughs> no, he did. He, 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 he did, did Loman's work for yeah. nothing. Yeah. And we appreciate that. And, uh, yeah, we're just so... It, it's it's kind of cool how all these things are, are are sprouting up. All these different ways that we are coming into contact with listeners is very cool. Yes, and uh, and so utopias, dystopias. Um, so this was this, sorry. Go ahead. I thought you were the, pausing. Well, no, I couldn't pause. <laughs> no, I was just going to say this was sparked by a link to a letter. Yes. Right. Um, and, and that's what was linked to on our subreddit, a letter from Aldous Huxley to, um, George Orwell, thanking him for the book that he had sent the copy of 1984. Um, but then really, really nicely. I like, I love the way people used to write letters. It was like a thank you for, to your publisher for sending me the book, which by the way, Tamler, thank you for finally sending me your book. Um, but then he couldn't help but launch into sort of his his opinion that Brave New World was the superior. It was British passive aggressiveness at its at its <laughs> peak. Uh, this letter, and it's great. And I also I also think Huxley is right. You know yeah. that as, as much as 1984 sort of captured the zeitgeist, it really isn't the kind of threat. I mean, I guess possibly North Korea for whatever to whatever right. extent that we know what's going on in there but um but yeah Huxley predicted that 
the things that he raised, the issues that he raised in Brave New World would be more, uh, that's more of a threat because it, it Brave New World has good things about it. Right. 1984 doesn't, really. Right, right. I mean, there's the presumed orderliness of the society, but everybody is made to act against their will. And I think this was the point of the letter where he said, you you essentially have created a world in which everybody is coerced to do things that they would rather not do. Much more likely, it is the case that an effective government of this sort would work by actually psychologically changing people so that they desire or don't desire certain things. To whatever extent this was prevalent at the time he wrote this letter, which I think is 1949, it's kind of amazing the way he predicts pharmaceuticals and the ways that yeah. they would kind of chill people out, and then the the materialism of America, you know, the the desire for consumption. You you see all this in Brave New World too, is that they have been conditioned to be content and to only aspire for contentness right right and that's kind of what we are we just don't want to be depressed or anxious or we want to be entertained and if you can do that then we'll we're fine and i'm perfectly fine being entertained by dystopian works (laughs) of fiction um you know one of the things i didn't realize was how much earlier brave new world was written than 1984 right there's like a good brave new world was what in the 30s 31 1931 so there's a you know a good like a good 15 year difference in in the thinking so it's weird that huxley at least i guess in our opinion we'll talk about it would get it right more than more than orwell would although you know orwell's as a work of fiction you know i don't think either of them were striving for accuracy necessarily but as a work of fiction i find the orwellian world to be more chilling well, one of the um, sort of differences is that Orwell was, he had been himself attracted to communism and attracted to the project that was going on in the so- Soviet Union and then got disillusioned by what was actually going on and sort of wrote that from uh, a ki- that kind of disillusioned, angry perspective, whereas Huxley was never on board with what he thought was going on in American and British society, which is the excesses of capitalism. Plus, also, I mean, it's it's Brave New World is such an interesting work because it is an equal parts condemnation of capitalism and communism. There are communist right. elements of it. There are capitalist elements of it. Their, their God is, is, is our, our Ford. And right. <laughs> everything is about encouraging people to consume and encouraging people to sort of numb themselves. But at the same time, there it's all about the denial of individualism and the, you know, that w- that everything is geared towards the good of the community. Like my favorite part of this letter um, is as he's explained why he thinks that his his vision of a future dystopia is more realistic. He says. Within the next generation, I believe the world's rulers will discover that infant conditioning and narco-hypnosis are, far, are more efficient as instruments of government than clubs and prisons, and that the lust for power can be just as completely satisfied by suggesting people into loving their servitude as by flogging and kicking them into obedience. 
In other words, I feel that the nightmare of 1984 is destined to modulate into the nightmare of a world having more resemblance to that which I imagined in Brave New World. Um, this change will be brought about as a result of a felt need for increased efficiency. People will, they can be drugged and persuaded through various means into um, being submissive. You right. don't have to like have a, like devote the resources towards uh, an oppressive police state. Or you'd constantly be having to make sure that people don't revolt. Right? Yeah. Let's talk about the elements of a dystopian. Yeah, because I was I hadn't really given that much thought to what exactly constitutes a dystopia. So what what and and in fact I think that the the sort of rise of of the popularity of dystopian work is is because of the advances of technology. Right? I think there's this general fear of what we could possibly achieve with technology and how it might be used. Um, yeah. against us like whether it's you know the all-seeing surveillance of of 1984 or the very precise genetic control here's what i was thinking okay tell me if you agree um there are the kinds of dystopias that are like you said a bit earlier that are actually on the face of it good worlds right that it seems as if everything is going fine but there's this secret underbelly of of hor horrific things going on right and um and once you realize that this is the sacrifice that has to be made in order for people to actually be happy it's just it's a dystopia right so it's it's a like utopia. a time machine or something. yeah yeah uh, it's like a it's example. disguised it's it's a utopia it's a dystopia disguised as a utopia right um and then you have worlds that are just like 1984 on the face of it you're just like whoa what a horrible way to live i take it that's you know so a lot of them are, are, I think, just straight up like, "Welcome to this world. It's horrible in all of these ways." Yeah. Um, no, it's not. It's not even like the, we're trying to make the perfect society. Um, like Blade, Blade Runner is like that, but but it, there's nothing good about living in the Blade right, Runner ro right. world. And then there is there is the uh, I guess a kind of a subgenre of dystopian fiction. That I avoided actually on my list. Um, by the way, we're doing our top fives. Did we say <laughs> our top? Five? I don't know. Um, if we did, yeah. um, which is post-apocalyptic dystopias. So, so some some horrible thing has happened to all of humanity, um, yeah. and and now everybody's sort of back to a state of nature and and just fending for survival, like a water world ish. <laughs> Uh, this this actually got me thinking um, about what counts as a dystopia, um, and I wasn't so. A lot of people on Twitter recommended The Road, and for and, and also Mad Max Fury Road, and every other Mad Max, right? And every other Mad Max. To me, those aren't dystopias. Those are post-apocalyptic movies. Yeah, like yeah. I don't know if I have a good reason for it. Maybe it's that. It's not nobody's taken control. Nobody, nobody even went into it with any kind of plan. It, it like all we have is just chaos, right? Like the it's like the Lord of the Fly. Like the Lord of the Flies isn't dystopia to me. Although you know, I yeah, right. Well, just that's, the straight up definition of dystopia is just the opposite of a utopia. So, so here's one element of a of a dystopian film that is in most of them, but not in these post apocalyptic uh, movies, which is that there's some overarching like ruling party. 
yeah. that is oppressing the the rest of the people in some ways. And in, right. and in some and in a lot of these, like the road, there's no ruling party. There's nothing. There's just the aftermath of some disaster. Right. And then there are some where some disaster has led to a utopia. I mean, to yeah. a dystopia. Um, and I think in in looking up some of the, these works, I, I came across a couple of articles that were that were pointing out that there's a ri- there's been a rise in in films that are dystopias. They claim that there is something in the air that is causing people to be more fascinated with dystopias, and. I don't know. I like I don't know if that's actually the case, but I was going to ask you if you think that now more than ever people enjoy imagining a world that is that horrible. You know, I know people will say, "Oh, we are actually living in a time of a dystopia." But like right. I don't know. I think that those people are younger than what it must be like been like to live to live through like nixon and the vietnam war and that whole era and j edgar hoover at the you know running the fbi and i i just think that and i'm too young for that too just to clarify but but i i mean i think that this kind of anxiety is at the heart of a lot of eras and not just our own era yeah yeah, um, it does sort of, seem like it's there. There are more of these in young adult fiction. Yeah, and reason. and and I think that that there's a time in life where you're more likely to be angsty, and yeah. I think this is why uh, books like 1984 and Brave New World are uh, like staples of high school education, right? Like I think they're they're the that this is the time in which you read these books where where they really sort of hit you their practice what you're doing when you create a dystopic 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 world um, dystopian dystopian world that's right <laughs> dystopic dystopic it's like a <laughs> it's like a disease it was dystopic all night last night i could smell it you're practicing what your values in society are you're sort of fleshing out through the creation of a fictional world what what would make the world horrible and in doing so you're clarifying what you value um, and I think that's a, that's good practice. That's why I, that's why I find them fascinating. It's like what makes a seemingly perfect world into a, a dystopia. Um, so let's look at some of the characteristics elements, um, beyond what we've been talking about. It seems like most dystopian works of art have some sort of repressive ruling class that encourages some degree of uniformity among right. its citizens the stripping away of individual freedom is such a theme in a lot of a lot of these dystopian works that that i wonder whether or not um there is there are that many examples of dystopian fiction in say collectivist countries right? I, I had the same exact thought yeah, yeah. So that that might characterize western works more yeah and so so I agree the the obsession with maybe keeping order um yeah in many ways if you're like a true true consequentialist some of these dystopias aren't that bad right um <laughs> well that's I think a big element of a lot of dystopias is it is they are subtle or not subtle critiques of utilitarianism Absolutely yeah 
Um, That's like such a big theme in so many of them that they are reductios of utilitarianism, essentially. Brave New World is like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, There's also this weird, and and I don't know why, there's a weird fascination with sex and reproduction is being controlled by the state. Um, And so in some cases, sex is just outlawed completely. Right. Um, in some cases, reproduction is regulated by the state. Right. In Brave New World, it's you can have sex to appease people, but never like you is like horrific to think of that as a means to reproduce. They right. encourage like like <laughs> yeah. you're looked at as you're stigmatized if you uh, yeah, you're not don't have, if you're, you're not, not promiscuous. <laughs> yeah. Or if you're yeah exactly if you're only fucking one person. Yeah. Like, what? You're, monogamous that's like people are looking at you a little funny there this is this is sounding like actually not a bad world (laughs) (laughs) harvey weinstein's like (laughs) then there's a technological aspect where which i mentioned before that that um oftentimes it's a technology that would that was intended to make everything better but has has unwittingly ironically made things much worse um, autonomy is restricted in some way. Sometimes it's by the um, despotic ruling class, but sometimes it can be f- for other reasons. Privacy, the lack of, yeah. you know, it's sort of related to the what we've said about freedom and, and yeah. autonomy, but privacy, there's a big fear that of always being watched and never having time um, that's completely private. Yeah, there's like a paranoia that yeah. runs through. And and often the main character who we're following, the protagonist, at first seems paranoid to all those to everybody. around them. Right. So maybe we should just dive right in. Um, yeah, and we can talk about um, these things as they come up. Yeah. Um, you want to you wanna go first? So yeah. Like uh, also- is there something that you like? Like, is, is there anything that... Um, separates a good versus a bad dystopian work I, of art for you. I guess, like I don't, I don't care that much for the post-apocalyptic worlds. I think those yeah. are, there's they're sort of one-trick ponies. But to me, they don't need to th- like for it to be good. They need to be diagnosing a problem in society. Yeah, maybe yeah. not a problem that will be <laughs> that there's a threat of being taken to the extreme that it's taken in the movie but that is a real problem right and and that problem is is exaggerated in right. in this society so that that to me is what marks right it it sheds light on something and actually now now that um you say that i'm i'm reminded of a, a good examples of technology um creating dystopias unintentionally which is essentially most of black mirror right so Right. So that that is the the best episodes of Black Mirror are ones that make you think about sort of the the implications of running with the technology that we currently have. And for that reason, I actually found I favor short stories quite a bit when when thinking about dystopias because like you can communicate the danger of this you know a particular threat really easily in just a few pages and make it very interesting. So I have a couple of short stories um, uh, on my list. So my number five is The Lobster. Yeah, and, uh, and I'd never watched it, so, so talk about it. <laughs> so this is a movie by the Greek 
writer, director, Yorgos Lanthimos. I, I thought it came out last year, but it says on IMDb that it's 2015. The setup of this is it's it's in the near future, and there is a regime in place in this world where um, people are not allowed to be single anymore. <laughs> you have to have a romantic partner. So you have our character protagonist, played by Colin Farrell, who his his wife left him for another for another guy and so he's taken into this hotel he's told that he has 45 days to find a romantic partner and if he doesn't find a a person then he's turned into an animal and and anyone can pick the animal that they want to be and he actually goes to the hotel with his brother who's a dog the opening scene of this movie is so great because it's just a woman pulling up in a car getting out and shooting i think it's a cow just shooting a cow and then getting back in the car and driving away and and it's like once you find out like what the premise of the movie is like you never hear about that again you just (laughs) You just know that, that that's someone that she was in a relationship with. And she, and she just like got her revenge and got back in the car and that's it. So it's it's very like the first part of the movie is very funny. He's in the hotel. It's this uh it's it's crazy the way they try to talk up being in a more romantic relationship. They do these little skits with these actors who are even worse than the Pepperdine actors in the um, (laughs) (laughs) trolley problem video. (laughs) Like they're they're just to sing the praises of um, being in a romantic relationship and you're not allowed to masturbate, but then like a maid comes to your room. (laughs) You're not even allowed to masturbate by yourself. This is a real dystopia. (laughs) This is a real yeah. No, yeah, not even solo is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, you can extend your stay by hunting down these single people. So apparently there's this rebel group of single people. This is what mm-hmm. makes it, a, like, a great dystopia in that there's a rebel group. <laughs> like, there's always some rebellion against the oppress- oppressive yeah, regime. exactly. But what's cool about this movie, and maybe if you haven't seen it, you might want to skip ahead. This isn't much of a spoiler, but the main character escapes and joins the rebel group of single people. And they're about as ridiculous and oppressive as the <laughs> uh, as the regi- as the ruling regime that wants to get people into romantic relationships. By the way, any romantic or sexual relations between loners are not permitted. And any such acts are punished. Is that clear? Can I have a conversation with someone? Of course you can. So long as there is no flirting or anything like that. That applies to dance nights as well. We all dance by ourselves. That's why we only play electronic music. What what I take it to be is an interesting critique of this movement of people who think it's all one way or another. 
you know like either you're gonna be happier if you're in a relationship uh, or if you're married and you only have one child or two children or no children or if you're gonna be single and it's uh, and so everybody is an extremist about the position that they're in and there what there is no room for are people who aren't sure what's good for them and who want to sort of feel their way out uh themselves and and not buy into whatever like the you know everybody thinks is right for human beings right so uh what animal would you be (laughs) i didn't have an answer but definitely a dog (laughs) um okay so that so yours are better ranked as always so this was your number five yeah, but I don't have these aren't like that important to me yeah. how they're ranked. But yes, it was my. Um, okay, so I'm gonna just get this one out of the way because um, I love it and I actually rewatched it uh, for for this recording, and that's Gattaca. Um, I I just love this film, maybe because I love Uma Thurman, but it's to me like a quintessential dystopia, right? It, it is. Yeah. It like hits all of the right notes. Um, to describe a dystopia. So it's Ethan Hawke plays um, a character who lives in a world populated by people who have been genetically engineered to get rid of all sort of human frailties. Like uh, people have, you know, perfect eyesight, no disease. Um, You know, they're all in good shape and attractive. And clearly there are people who are born without this without the aid of genetic uh, engineering and these people are a, a subclass of citizens right again with the theme yeah. of the subclass there those are the janitors or whatever um but if you want to do anything important in ethan hawk's character wants to be an astronaut um you have to have been born and have this pedigree of gen- genetically engineered and they are able to with technology um correct for these things but if not they can even tell so in in ethan hawk's uh case he was born in the normal way um, because his parents chose to uh, have have a natural birth that way and they can even tell him like from just a dna analysis at birth what his chances are of dying from what and at what age so so he's he's hindered by this he has bad eyesight he's not as big as the other kids but he really really wants to be a an astronaut so he uh in a very, very elaborate way is able to deceive all of the genetic testers and all of the screening um, for, for genetic purity by essentially hiring out the services of a perfectly born individual played by Jude Law who has all of the right traits and characteristics. It just turns out that he was in an accident and is in a wheelchair, so he can't really do anything. So, so in exchange for some money... Um, he gives them his piss. He gives them blood samples. Um, he gives them hair samples. And Ethan that's Hawkins, another feature of dystopian yeah. is is some character like that, right? Like the sort of disillusioned golden child or something. Exactly. Uh, one that. The- so anyway, long story short, he's able to fool them for some amount of time. A murder occurs, and they find DNA evidence of somebody who is in these astro- the astronaut office who is not a genetically pure person. They think that it's Ethan Hawke is the killer. In fact, he's not, but he has to go on the run. And I think the central uh, feature of this movie, the theme of the movie, is that Ethan Hawke's 
desire and his pure will to be um, to be an astronaut or to excel in this society where everybody is better than him um, genetically, so physically superior, more intelligent. Um, the lengths to which he's willing to go to achieve his goals um, sounds cheesy, and it, maybe the idea is, but it's sort of a triumph of the of the human will um, to defeat all of those constraints. And there's this great, it's, it's sort of sandwiched with this great story about how he and his genetically perfect brother used to race out in the water, and um, Ethan Hawke's character would always lose because he was genetically inferior, except for one time he, he won. He had the willpower to get everything done. Um, because DNA no. has nothing to do with willpower. <laughs> That's just um, but you know, the like, dualism of this, like the implications of these things are yeah. very funny. As if like all of these awesome traits, I'd like that it just has nothing to do with his DNA. That has to do <laughs> exactly. with it's like the human soul. spirit. That's the right. human That's spirit. Right. And uh, the, the, one of the reasons I really like the movie um, is it just looks cool. It's like the, the art direction, like the, the world they create is is a really cool looking world, um, which is hopefully characteristic of all good yeah. yeah dystopian movies like they should look pretty cool yes I never got into Gattaca, but i i I don't trust my judgment of it because I hated Ethan Hawke at that time, which is weird because I now like him like, <laughs> as an actor, but at the time that it came out, I hated him, and so that colored my perception of the movie, but it is a prototypical yeah, if you look it exactly. up in the dictionary of a dystopian <laughs> movie you know it has that individual rebellion it has the restriction of autonomy the the repressive power the mm-hmm. yeah the the forced highly encouraged genetic breeding and the invasion of privacy all that yeah. stuff we we joked but like i think a lot of dystopian fiction again especially in the west i think you're probably right that it's this, you wouldn't have this as much in a collectivist culture, but is the triumph of the individual human mm-hmm. spirit against some some sort of bodily aspect right. of right. of hum, human being. You know, in this case, their DNA. You it's know. breaking their chains, like, like either literal, meta, like metaphor, genetic yeah. ones, or societally imposed constraints that they're breaking free from. Yeah. So I said that most great dystopian movies should look beautiful. <laughs> and my next one actually probably doesn't. But it's never let me go and it's and and that's just the movie. So, but I but the even the novel which I love by Ishiguro is and actually I'm going to put this as a, the novel, but the movie is very good too, um made by Alex Garland who wrote it and Mark Romanek who directed it. Both, both are good. I would recommend reading the novel first. Did you read it? I, I feel like I sent it to you. Said, I sent yeah, it no, to I you. No, I haven't. You did. And I have not read it. <laughs> That's so there you go. I sent it to you like a year ago for like Christmas last year. <laughs> That's right. But it's a beautifully written book, like all of Ishiguro's, but it's the plot of it is one of these sort of utilitarian versus deontological puzzles which is essentially that you so the way the book opens is that it's uh kids in a boarding school and you get the sense that they're probably orphans and but something's wrong something's a little off but otherwise (laughs) they're just british kids in a boarding school i don't know again skip ahead if you don't want to know anything about this because i didn't know this when i read it but this you find this out early on in the book 
It turns out that they are clones. They are living in a society where clones are harvested for their organs just to have just to have a pool of organs right. because people die all the time right now right. without having uh, because you know there's not enough people on the organ donor list so or there's not enough organs available they are creating this class of people and they treat them this is one of those where it's not so oppressive they don't torture them they give them a fairly good upbringing and they all take care of each other as in another utilitarian thing it's not just one organ that you can get out of them so you can get right. more than one organ yeah, yeah. so they have their or else uh, it, or else the math just wouldn't wouldn't be worth it, it. <laughs> so at a certain point in their life they become carers where they care for people who have lost one or two or whatever organs that they've lost and um yeah, and there's like it's a beautiful love story, but it is this idea where if we had this technology, you could create a group of people, treat them fairly well. I mean, it's it's, it's there's also like a factory farming analogy or a free range farming analogy actually cuz more free range than factory farm. Right. And where like you're creating these people to serve a purpose, they get to li- live decent lives while they're alive. They wouldn't have gotten to live at all if they hadn't been alive. So is it okay to do it? Do they know? And they don't know. They do they, know. Oh, they do know. Okay. They do know once they reach adulthood, right. not uh, as their kids. I, I mean, I won't say the, the one other thing that you realize is that a, a bunch of the kids think that if if they do something really special, artistically special, um, then maybe they will be removed from right. the list of organ or if they can actually find the person that they're then that person will be so attached to them that they won't want them to, <laughs> right. to die <laughs> once yeah. they look them in the eye yeah um <laughs> how could you kill me okay yeah interesting so it doesn't sound like that bad of like it's just they, they in some sense at least they know their life has a purpose unlike us right like it's an open question, not necessarily whether it should. Yeah, we would do this if we could, but more like you know, is this really so bad? You know what I was thinking? Uh, the the reason that these dystopian works of fiction are often critiques of utilitarianism. I was like, well, what if a utilitarian is like, what if a utilitarian wrote a dystopic fiction about deontology and i was like that's just what this world is right like (laughs) like we this is there's nothing that interesting to say so this one yeah maybe i'll lump these two together because they're both short stories one of them there's not that much to say about because the point is so clear and i feel like it's such a well-known uh story and that's ursula k Le Guin's story short story called The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas. And this is, if you haven't heard the story or the title itself, you've probably heard the, the example. And, and it is about a society where everybody lives happily. Um, but the deep, dark secret for why they live happily is that they have to have one child who's like miserably tortured yeah. in some dark basement. Right. Um, and she, Ursula K. Le Guin, is a, wonderful science fiction writer um, just wrote this short story in 1973. And I feel like it's sort of a constant example, again, an anti-utilitarian example 
Um, and in fact, in the story itself, you could go see the kid. And every, every once in a while, people will, once they see them, they will leave that utter happiness. They'll just leave the society in, in, because they can't deal with the fact that this is what it takes. Um, but, but again, a very clearly, obviously good utilitarian <laughs> um, yeah. uh, rationale. The, the this other is one, actually uh, <laughs> Dostoevsky had this example. Yeah, in, in the, the brothers, in brothers Karamazov. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. It's a, it's an idea that is, it's hard to, yeah, it's hard to argue against the strong intuition that torturing one kid for the sake of the happiness of everybody is horrible and it's wrong. Um, but on the other hand, like when you really think about it, with like. Th- we do essentially that to lots and I don't know. It's a, yeah, it's your I, iPhone. I, I, exactly. Um, I feel but like no, I might, I mean, I might take like, that. And also like, it's hard to argue against the intuition that those people who see the kid should immediately leave the society and right. renounce their happiness. Right. Even though it won't do any good, it doesn't help the kid. Right. It doesn't help. The but it's thoughts, like, right. this, doesn't it feel like that's sh- shaking exactly their fists at God. Right. Yeah, the right thing to do at that point. Yeah, yeah. And like I, I refuse to be uh, to benefit from this torture. Like I'd rather yeah. be miserable, even though it's it's just one kid, right? And so, I, me being miserable won't help the kid. Exactly, exactly. You can't. The other, I think, pretty interesting uh, story that maybe less well known, although I don't know because I'm not in the literary circles, is a short story by Kurt Vonnegut called Harrison Bergeron. I don't yeah. know if you've ever heard it. Yeah, you know yeah. this one, right? It's again, very short, very concise. But the idea here is that uh, not that society has decided to do genetic engineering to make everybody perfect or that they have built you know, structures to make everybody extremely attractive and happy or anything like that. It's that the solution is to make everybody exactly equal. And so it's satire, right? It's, you know, you could take it take it as satire of the idea as some idea or as a reductio of, of egalitarianism. It's a great story because just the description, there's no high tech stuff going on. It's like, if you are too pretty, you have to wear an ugly mask. Yeah. If you are uh, too strong, if you're stronger than average, they have to like tie bags with weights that hold you down so that you'll be just as strong as everybody else if you're too fast. If you're a good dancer, you you know you wear restraints to make your dancing average. So everybody's completely average. If you're smarter than everybody else, whenever you start thinking uh, this is, I guess, technology. Whenever you start thinking deep thoughts, you're blasted with a noise that's been tailored to interrupt your thinking so that you can never actually get the, the get the thought clear. I, I take this to be a satire of a view that you promote on this podcast quite a bit, which is that e- equality is a good no matter what. Like, and no matter how people are designed, no matter what people are naturally disposed to do, like, you should try to make <laughs> them equal, you, which is why you wouldn't let your what daughter. What did you, I'm going like, to quote. You dragged her kicking and screaming out of the aisle of, with, like, pink dresses. Or I'm going gonna, gonna to quote Christina Hoff Summers. <laughs> You've already misrepresented my position. <laughs> The equality of opportunity for talented people to flourish is exactly what I think this <laughs> this is this is pointing out that that a society in in which you ought 
to do everything you can to allow people to have the right. option to become ballerinas or ballerinos um, is right. Um, so, it, so in the story, <laughs> ballerinos. I think yeah, that's, that's probably that's, the that's right, right word. For yeah. So in the story, there is a a couple whose son, who's fourteen years old, escapes. Um, turns out to be sort of a, a genetic god of sorts. Right? He's seven feet tall, really strong and fast, and really good looking. So he has to wear like all these handicaps. Um, and once again, in the tradition of dystopian fiction, he is the one who rises above, he escapes, and he decides to, um, to make a grand entrance where he you know, rips apart all of his shackles and his mask and his weights, and he says, I'm going to be the emperor, I'm going to rule, um, I'm superior, and he picks the most beautiful woman and says, you'll be my empress and she, you know, takes off her mask and she's gorgeous. And they, this is all on TV and his parents are watching. Um, and then the handicapper general who's in charge of all of the handicaps just comes and shoots them with a 24 gauge with, with a 12 gauge shotgun, just shoots them live and they die. And then the, the, the mother who is already a simpleton, she doesn't need any mental handicaps, just kind of sheds a tear and then forgets what happened and the father just gets distracted by the noise. And so they're only sad for a minute. That's great. Yeah, no, I like Harrison Bergeron a lot. So I'm glad you put that in. Um, my number three is Snowpiercer. Did you yeah, ever yeah, see yeah. Snowpiercer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so, I, uh, I considered putting it on, but I know you're penchant for Korean cinema. <laughs> uh, Bong Joon-ho. It's, I guess it came out in 2013 or 14. This is about a very specific thing, which is class and the, the the inequality between the classes. So the setup is global warming and environmental catastrophe. Another kind of, uh, this is something that is in many, many right. dystopian works. All, everything is frozen. Nobody can live except that one very, very rich person developed a train that can just keep going around the earth. And it, and it, and it goes around the earth once every year so at new year's it will be at the same place every year but it just keeps going and keeps going and for some reason which i don't remember uh it has to it has to keep moving right um constantly it has it's a perpetual motion machine and what's awesome about this is so the very lowest classes the poorest classes that get the most disgusting protein bars that's their only food and nourishment and you know, I won't spoil what they are or where they come from, but <laughs> so they're in the last car of the train. And then as you go up the train, people just get richer and richer and richer and richer until you get to the decadent, the most decadent, like one percenters, point one percenters. Passengers, this is not shoe. This is disorder. This is size 10 chaos. This, see this? This is death. In this locomotive we call home, there is one thing that between our warm hearts and the bitter cold. Clothing? Shields? No. Order. Order is the barrier that holds back the frozen death. We must, all of us, on this train of life, remain in our allotted station. We must, each of us, occupy our preordained particular position. 
it's as heavy-handed um, uh, a, a metaphor or an allegory as you could possibly have, um, but it makes it into a great action movie. It's awesome, and also just a visual like masterpiece. I mean, right. the way that this every car, every different car is so beautifully rendered that yeah. the uh, the classroom in one of the rich cars, yeah. the sushi bar. There's, I mean, there's like a drug den car. It's so brilliantly shot. Yeah, it's heavy handed. Yeah, uh, and I don't even mean that as an insult because right. you know right away, obviously, this is a microcosm, right? It's like yeah. th- these are the people who are alive and this is the stratification. It's just all in a train. Just takes society and puts it <laughs> in a train. Exactly. <laughs> the way it ends is sort of interesting, too. It gives its own kind of statement as to where this is all ending up. And I love uh, the actor who plays the... Chris Evans. No, the engineer. The, um, what's oh name? yeah, yeah. Ed I, Harris. Ed Harris. Great, great movie. Great. Um, and again, uh, one uh, one of those that is post apocalyptic, but 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 not Mad Maxi apocalypse. No, yeah. not at all. And and very much within the dystopian kind of idea of this oppressive class, this indivi- this rebellion. I guess in this case, oh, and it's a South Korean director. It's not an individual rebellion as much as it is a class rebellion. That's right. Um, yeah. Okay, so my next... I, f- I fear I'm delving into the obvious um, now. So I'm going to get a couple of obvious ones out of the way. Um, and one is a, a great film, and if, if you disagree, then you're crazy, which is... Children of Men, um, by this was an honorable mention. Yeah, by Alfonso Cuarón. This, I mean, so again, a lot of the themes, the central disaster that leads to a totalitarian British state is that, um, for some reason, eighteen years ago, people stopped being able to reproduce. It's based, I guess, on a book. Um, So nobody's having babies. World population is freaking out. Um, Everything is in chaos. Uh, the UK has managed to have some sort of order through military rule. Um, because of that, immigrants are trying to get in from all over, and um, they are they are sort of being forcibly kept out of the UK. Um, the I don't know how much to spoil, but Clive Owen um, essentially. Uh, is in charge of protecting the fate of one young woman who miraculously, mysteriously, we never get an explanation, um, is pregnant for the first time on Earth for 18 years. And for various reasons, her life is in danger. People want to use her politically. Um, And they're a group of terrorists who are trying to fight pro-immigrant. So there's explosions, and, uh, and it's very, very well shot. I mean, there are some scenes in this movie that made me think that I, I just never seen a shot so compelling, like single shot action sequences that are so well done. I, I don't know. It's like, like it's got a famous like long take that long that, take shot in the car is amazing. It's not much to say other than it's a great, I think it's a well-directed movie because the ideas are standard um, dystopian ideas. In this case, a lot of political stuff in there about immigrants trying to get in into the uk and being being forcibly held out and and the free you know the individual freedom fighters who are trying to to make everything but also the anxiety about 
children. And, yeah, and the whole world is freaking out like because nobody understands, nobody knows why, and you're never told why, what happened. And and I guess that the, at the end of it, it is the theme of hope that this this young woman who is this young African woman who is pregnant for the first time in whatever nearly two decades is is a, a symbol, almost a Christ like symbol of hope, right? My number two. I, this is the one that if somebody was going to say that's not really a dystopia, like this would be the one to pick on. Um, and it's both a novel that I love and a movie that I love. And it's The tr- Trial by Franz Kafka yeah. and the Orson Welles I never saw movie. the movie. Do you agree that it's kind of... The reason I would put it as a dystopia, I, th- I think dystopians, when they're good, are diagnosing something about some sort of thing that we're anxious about, some sort of problem, some sort of endemic problem within the society that we're in, you know, usually exaggerating it. And in this case, it is the faceless bureaucracy of our legal systems and the the faceless bureaucracy and, and the just sort of nonsensical bureaucracy of of just a, a modern industrialized society. I thought you were going to lapse into a defense of restorative justice all of a sudden. Um. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, although I could, actually. That, that's, that's, uh, no, that's not where I was going to take this. But anyway, I mean, I think both the book and the novel, I'm sorry, both the, the book and the film are just... There are they tap in even though it's very surreal what's going on. It taps into a feeling that we've all had, like whether you're on the phone with uh, an airline, you know, <laughs> representative right. or some customer service person trying to get your refund for something that didn't work. Or I mean, it is this feeling of powerlessness. Yeah, completely powerless. It's a, yeah, you, it really communicates well that feeling of power. And you mentioned that that's actually a theme that we didn't bring up, but one that now that you say it is clear in a lot of them is that bureaucracy is yeah. is one of my honorable mentions would have been Brazil, right? That, so yeah. that was the one I had to hear if you didn't let me put the trial in is Brazil because <laughs> it's the same sort yeah. of exactly the same. Yeah. It's yeah. a and it is a. The bureaucracy as representing uh, complete detachment from human of of human with human, right? Yeah. It is, and I think that might be a deeper just theme: the disconnect. And maybe that's why reproduction and sex are so uh, central to dystopian works too. Is that there is something about alienation and a dis being disconnected from other human beings, and a bureaucracy makes you feel that so powerfully. I mean, just try to get. Up your bank to do something for you like why would they care right like they have all of the power it's not like a mom and pop store where you can say like ruin their reputation like i wish i could ruin bank of america's reputation like I was or that they had to see you at church yeah, that sunday exactly. or that they like and and of course for us it just leads to a lot of frustrating calls with comcast but for right. some people this leads to like i'm in jail for six months because i can't get right. uh my trial set because i don't have a good lawyer because right. the whole system is fucked and this is why we should have restorative justice but you know. <laughs> and i wouldn't have you know i guess i wouldn't have put the trial as the dystopian work because to me at least in my memory it is so much about the the 
the crazy feeling of not knowing what the fuck is going on that the individual is feeling, um, which is that that feeling overwhelms my recollections of the book. And I think less about the society, the society, faceless bureaucracy and more about his individual psychological mm-hmm. response. But right. But, I mean, there you get this. You don't get a great sense of what this bureaucracy is like. Like you would in many dystopian, like you get, you don't get the rules of this place. Right, um, it makes me want to reread some Kafka. Um, okay, so I have one that also, like I'll say now, because I'm not sure, <laughs> I'm not sure if it qualifies, but it is, it is so apt a metaphor for the sort of dystopia that people feel that they might be in right now, and it's one episode of the Twilight Zone. It's perhaps. It's one of the most famous episodes of The Twilight Zone, and I don't know if you've seen it, but it is called It's a Good Life, a story about a small Midwestern town, Peaksville, Ohio. Um, and I'll just read you the opening narration of, of uh, Rod Serling. It says, uh, this, as you may recognize, is a map of the United States, and there's a little town there called Peaksville. On a given morning not too long ago, the rest of the world disappeared, and Peaksville was left all alone. Its inhabitants were never sure whether the world was destroyed and only Peaksville left untouched, or whether the village had somehow been taken away. They were, on the other hand, sure of one thing, the cause. A monster had arrived in the village. Just by using his mind, he took away the automobiles, the electricity, the machines, because they displeased him. And he moved an entire community back into the Dark Ages just by using his mind. And so then he introduces, uh, he describes this monster as whenever anybody displeases him by having bad thoughts or doing something he doesn't like, he whisks them away to the cornfield, which is from the episode is pretty clear he's killing them. Um, So you have to always have happy thoughts or else. Right. right? And the monster turns out to be this little like seven-year-old boy. Um, named Anthony Fremont. Scary as shit. Scary as shit. And it's, he does a great job too, man, is because the first time you see him, he looks like a cute little boy playing on a farm. And then as you're told that he is the monster, his eyes sort of turn and he is just the creepiest, pretty much lobotomized his aunt because she did something he didn't like. He killed little, uh, friends who came to play with him because they said something he didn't like. So everybody is afraid to say anything. And all they say to this little boy is, that's a good thing you did, wasn't it? That's a really good thing. And you could just see the pain in their face because they know if they think anything bad, they're going to get killed or whatever. Um, And so finally this one guy gets drunk and uh, just snaps and in a rage just starts calling him a monster and a a monster and a murderer. And in one of the most grotesque, one of the most grotesque ideas and scenes that has been copied on one of the Simpsons episodes. He turns this guy into a human Jack in the box. Right. (laughs) Uh, And, and as I was showing this to uh, my friend, the rule of the tyrant in this episode, I couldn't help but think this is, this is not at all unlike how Trump is ruling how everybody's afraid to say anything against him and how deep down he's just a little kid with whims and like uh, has, but, but yet he has his finger on the button. Well, I, I, I guess I agree that he's like a little kid 
like that wants people to say nice things. I don't <laughs> yeah. agree that people are afraid to say bad things about him. People well, seem people say. seem, yeah, so it's not perfect. Um, yeah. But it is striking that so many people are unwilling to publicly act against him um, when I think they secretly would. Like, I think a lot of people, if they could, would actually, but they're afraid that they will lose their position or lose their standing. But either way, it doesn't matter whether it's a good analogy for Trump or not. It just is a microcosm little town where, again, not unlike the perpetual surveillance of a 1984, uh, not unlike the seemingly random punishment of, uh, of the trial, you have essentially constantly being surveilled to please one immature mind who will yeah. <laughs> disproportionately punish you for the smallest of infractions. Um, and there's thought police, literally thought police. Literal thought he, police, but the thought police yeah. do, don't have principles. Like it's, yeah. uh, it's, <laughs> and so you're constantly having to guess what he will like and what he won't. Right? Yeah. It's spurious. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that's a classic. It's good. Do you think it was like a lot of Twilight Zones targeting some specific aspect of society at the time was there a target was in the way that you just did with trump like is there was there somebody that they were thinking of i don't think so i mean i didn't live during that time but i think that one of the reasons it stands the test of time is it wasn't satire in a way that i don't know that black mirror will stand the test of time because the the it's so clear what black mirror in many cases is trying to tell us about current society Twilight Zone was just is an anthology series that was way more speculative. The best ones are ones that aren't political or specific, right? Black Mirror not standing the test of time. The I don't know if I agree that they're what they're saying is always so clear. It's not uh, always, but it's you know what I what, why I think I said that is because it is Black Mirror is sort of perpetually in the near future. And so its stories are imagine social media, but a lot of it, right? Or, you know, imagine reality show, but even worse, right? But then there, the ones that I'm thinking of aren't dystopias, but like the one where you could create a person that died and have like a, like a, like an embodiment of that person right. with, you know, you could interact with them, but that's not a dystopia. No. But I, I, I think that episode be right back. will stand the test of time. I think, yeah. I don't know. 15 million merits is another obvious dystopian one, which I really liked when I saw it, but yeah, I don't know what it's exactly saying. And especially the stuff about, reality television and how right. unscrupulous everybody is yes. sometimes it's too on the nose I, I, yeah. and i think that that that's what will and whereas there i mean there were a ton of twilight zones and some of them probably are like that but some of them really yeah. just were completely way more speculative into the sci-fi realm all right let me do my number one okay i don't know maybe it's your number one too a clockwork orange uh no that's, no it's not my number one no so, uh, I mean, mine mine isn't a real number one anyway it's <laughs> is it even is a clockwork orange even a dystopian movie i mean i think it is it's not normally thought of it just because everyone thinks of it as just this fucked up masterpiece but i think it is a dystopian like in every sense of the word yeah i consider i considered it and sort of dismissed it as as not not a dystopian because because again the parts that i found, found interesting were really not about society, but about that particular 
character and the doctor that tries, you know, I don't, it's not that I disagree. It's that's why I, I mean, it create it, it's world building yeah. in a way that dystopian films are. They create this incredibly beautiful, but horrifying world to look at. It has certain kind of technology that we don't have, but that you could see that people would want to implement if it was going to lead to the benefit of society. It has that sort of critique of utilitarianism, although in this case, it's less obvious maybe that it's a reductio of utilitarianism than a... Although I think it might have been meant that way, but it's not as obvious that you... You know, like you you find yourself weirdly rooting for this rapist serial murderer because you want him to retain his autonomy autonomy, you don't find yourself rooting for him exactly but you find yourself at least conflicted about what's being done to him i mean it's a master sort of masterful manipulation of you to of the viewer to be in the awkward position of kind of (laughs) cheering for his overcoming his treatment right and getting back to crime Right. It's like a glorious scene where he's like gets back to being like a rapist. Right. And you're just like, wait, am I am I rooting for the rapist? There is something about what they do, that conditioning that is that goes again. And again, I wonder how this plays in China or something like that. You know, (laughs) you guys are idiots. (laughs) You would really let a rapist out. I mean, I don't know. Like, I'm sure it's all a spectrum. But um, but there is that kind of we really have this aversion to our autonomy, even though our autonomy is restricted all the time by so many sources that we're not aware of. That's the weird thing, which is the dystopian fiction just like points out discrete, concrete causes of the autonomy restriction. We are restricted in so many ways, but I don't feel like I'm currently being restricted in any way, but like on any like of a number of descriptions i'm completely hobbled i'm like harrison bergeron like i you know i'm a seven foot tall god of a man who's has to wear an ugly mask and <laughs> because nobody will let me be my true me you know uber mensch kind right. of <laughs> i have to have office hours and pay bills and wipe my ass just like everybody else and like, buy the not iphone fair. 10 just what <laughs> apple has done in terms of respect restricting your autonomy is like you know it's way more than what they do in clockwork orange or brave new world <laughs> that's right hypnopedia it's the it's it's uh it, it, yeah it's a masterful manipulation of desires I and mean, we haven't even talked about things like you know facebook manipulating your your oh. moods and all of that stuff like whatever is talked about in brave new world may not be efficient and effective yet but there's like the attempt at getting you to buy more by serving you targeted ads and to get your mood to change or your opinion to change by serving you a news feed that is that is directed at you all of this stuff is not it's not crazy right it's just that the dystopias make the fiction makes it like gives you a concrete bad guy who's doing it but it also this is the thing it also makes us feel like oh thank god we're not that when yeah we kind of are, you Ooh, know, like the dystopian the, the diff- literature itself is actually pacifying us. Like, like <laughs> exactly. 
The one difference is in dystopian um, fiction, it's usually well coordinated and there's some sort of centralized coordination of the manipulation. Whereas what we feel most likely isn't that. It's more just a bunch of different things. It's corporations um, vying for for yeah, attention, for our, time, and money. Our, yeah, yeah, for the various parts of our will. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> they're competing over our will. But it's not our. It's not going to be our will, no matter what. I mean, it's hard for me not to see my daughter as being completely constrained in her autonomy by like her telephone giving her alerts and like telling you know. It, but but I don't see. But I see my own phone as like you know unleashing a world of possibilities. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so yeah. anyway, a Clockwork Orange is. I think you know it hits all the you know it raises a big philosophical question about the justification of punishment and how far we're able to go to restrict a person's autonomy in order right. to rehabilitate somebody or we don't get the sense of how this happened or what kind of world it is exactly but right. in some ways it's like battle royale in which there's not some big environmental catastrophe but there's clearly something that's happened where things have gotten out of control and this is their way of reining it in right bringing order to society in battle royale it's the society of like eighth graders but i i think honestly like along with maybe one flew over the cuckoo's nest there was this movement of films and novels both were novels too that that sort that that really rebelled against the utilitarian and rehabilitative strain uh, in punishment in criminal justice and because of that that led to the retributivist revival in the 70s i mean these works were like the two that i point to as sort of diagnosing how dissatisfied americans and and western people at least were with this attitude that we had about punishment which was completely different than it is now yeah, and I, I'm not so sure that it's anti-utilitarian in as much as it is just pro-agency and and maybe uh, it's anti uh, the utilitarian approach to punishment. I think it, which was dominant in right. the time. I yeah. think Burgess, the yeah. novelist, even said that that this was something that disturbed him. But if not, um, it's funny because yeah. you know 1984 ends creepily with uh, I forget the protagonist's name. Um, uh, being brainwashed successfully and actually having actually loving big brother. Right. And in some ways, because we have the God's eye view, um, that is very, very scary to us. Um, because he can't even fight for his own autonomy anymore. Yeah. And, um, and the same with brave, you know, brave new world. It is implant the desire to not be like to, to not have your autonomy. And that's that. Whereas in the clear case of coercion, uh, Harrison Bergeron and and um, Clockwork Orange, they are aware that they are being crippled, that they are being made in a coercive way. And it's much creepier to me if you get me to completely, if you give me some soma and condition me and I never even think about wanting to be a, like an autonomous agent. Right. Well, then it's not you anymore. It's not. Yeah. Then, it's no it's like you. they've murdered you. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's like I've been in a Star Trek transporter. 
Um, <laughs> right. Okay, this is this is a, this I, silly that I kept this one for number one, but in my true sort of you know everyman character, which unlike the point one percent of you who would be at the very front of the train um, in Snowpiercer, I I like to look down for my entertainment rather than than hold my nose up, and so I put idiocracy at the top. <laughs> I, you know, I've never seen it, but oh, I, like, I yeah. thought I, if I had had time, this would have been the time. It's not <laughs> out of like principle or anything. Like, I want to see it. It's yeah. very smart. It's a very Mike Judge, the creator of Beavis and Butthead and various other things, is very smart. Um, so it's a clever movie under the guise of just like a really, really dumb movie. But the idea is that some that uh, a guy gets frozen by mistake he gets cryogenically frozen 500 years later he's he's unfrozen and he realized that the have you seen the movie wally like the yeah, of course. yeah so the world is not unlike the wally world where human beings are lazy dumb fat sorry obese and uh they're they can barely string together a sentence the the iq of the average person has gone down so low um, because it's only the dumb people who are having kids that this guy who is absolutely average in our current time is hands down the, the smartest person in the entire world um, in idiocracy. And the entire world is run by corporations. Everybody's name is like named after some company, right? <laughs> like, and uh, the president he is a, a former wrestler. Luke Wilson is the average guy who's in the future, and and he realizes that part of what's going on is that they're in this environmental crisis because they have been watering the soil with energy drink instead of water because the companies convinced them to buy the energy drink, and 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 it's just great satire on society. It's it's super entertaining, and on the face of it, seems really dumb, but I think they're really smart ideas in there. Great cameo by Scarface, the rapper from Houston, as a pimp named Upgrade. (laughs) Representing (laughs) H-Town. Yeah. By no means is it the best movie on our list, but but I I feel like more people should watch it. And I am one of those people. I've been wanting to watch it for a while. I get the sense that it's not a perfect movie, but that it's (laughs) No, it's not. It's Mike Judge. There's a lot of, like, lowbrow humor, um, but it is great. It is great satire. Um, any honorable mentions? My, minority Report. The, yeah, I had yeah, that too. Yeah, it's I mean, good. It's, it's good. I, I like this. The story, I'm sure, better than the movie, but but uh, the movie is what I was thinking. Of. The movie is pretty good. We yeah. watched it again recently, and it holds up. And there, it's it's like the look of it is very cool, and the yeah. stuff where the like the cars are going up like vertically, yeah. like all that stuff is done really well, and. Yeah, the you know the idea that you know pre-punishment is, um, and I, so, I don't I don't like that it's that the story is that they're psychics. I, I wish it were more pre-crime by by genetics and statistics. Yeah, I agree. There are a few. So V for Vendetta, um, I think, yeah. um, is it's an okay movie, but it's a great book. Like I highly recommend the the comic book. Like you said, would Blade Runner be on my list? And just in terms of creating what we would envision a dystopia cinematically like i have to obviously give a nod to that like i don't i don't find the society 
uh, the, I don't find the dystopian notions of that movie to be the most interesting ones, right? It's sort of right. it's sort of ruled by corporations and it's dark and dreary and it showed a future that wasn't shiny and sparkly, but there were flying cars and people were still miserable. So I love Blade Runner 2049 also, but more for the look of it and the just being immersed in the world of it. Um, than for any of the ideas, but I loved it. Like, and like Denis Villeneuve, the music, and just like it being in the presence of it was awesome. Another, another one that 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 is just too on the nose, and maybe is the Matrix, right? The just the the idea that we're actually all plugged in into simulated worlds. You know that that maybe deserves an honorable mention. Um, I cannot get into the Matrix. I have gone in like three or four times with the best faith yeah. ever, and yeah, I, I just the, can't you, get into it. You missed the window where you would appreciate it. Yeah, it's, I think it's hard to watch now. No, I mean I saw it when it came out, oh, yeah. so it's not even like I didn't, you know. But I, I've gone back to it because it came out in a period where I was a little snobby. You right. might not believe this, but there was a time no, where I was a little snobby all. about movies, I, and I, I, that prevented I, me from enjoying things that I should have enjoyed. The number one reason I don't think you're snobby is that I don't think that you love pronouncing Denis Villeneuve's name. <laughs> Denis Villeneuve. <laughs> Dark City. So I we watched this last night um, just because I was reminded a bunch of people recommended this. Yeah, I've Twitter, never watched it. Yeah, I wish I had more. Time it's to good. Watch it. I I don't think it's a dystopia exactly. So that's why I didn't put it on. It's good. It's it's cool. To, it's really cool to look at. It definitely builds a world, but it's. And you know, I mentioned Wally that has a dystopia in it. It's just not, absolutely not about it. Um, I was and, thinking oh, modern times. I almost put that on the list, but uh, I figured if I was going to put the trial, I couldn't also put modern times. But that has a dystopian elements to it. It exaggerates certain problems with an indust- the industrial. Well, yeah. Age. Actually, now that you now that you say that, um, I I almost to balance out my my uh, averageness in cinema tastes, I almost put Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Yeah, um, because well, that's definitely a dystopia. Yeah, it, it is almost like the cinematically the the father of dystopian movies. Um, yeah, and then RoboCop. That's my only other. <laughs> I love. RoboCop. That's a great movie. <laughs> yeah. But again, it's not like it doesn't make you think about things as much as it's just a great movie. You know, a few people um, mentioned AI. The, the Spielberg. I've never seen it. I saw it once, and and I I did I didn't like it. Um, and I, I feel like maybe I just hate Haley Joel Osment, or at least I did back then. Um, and it was <laughs> Why like, do you hate him? I just couldn't stand his little face. It's just like it bothered me. It's like <laughs> you know, it's to pull a Tamler. Like I don't need a reason. Like I just couldn't stand him. Like I thought he was just like a weird. What do you kid. mean? I- like I'm just like I, you know you know it's just a gut like I just it just oh I see what you're saying. yeah just my yeah. gut reaction <laughs> um, I'm not saying you don't like little boys Tamler loves I little see boys dead people <laughs> um, uh, and I was also disappointed um, you know it was hyped up so much as a Kubrick story that I thought Spielberg kind of ruined. But I, well, but that's I why I think I never saw it. I, yeah. I couldn't give it a fair viewing because the idea of Spielberg coming in and doing like a Kubrick movie and 
fucking it up in that Spielberg way. Like, I couldn't stomach it. (laughs) I I will tell this story, and then we can wrap up. Um, Spielberg got an honorary doctorate at Yale the year that I graduated. And so they were announcing the honorary doctorates, and Spielberg comes up to the stage, and they're playing, like, the Indiana Jones theme music, and everyone's cheering, and everyone's like yelling out to him like the names of his movies you know they're like (laughs) yeah jones et and then the crowd dies down and i'm sitting there with my robe and gown and i just go ai (laughs) that was it that was my story that's your story (laughs) i was expecting a better punchline (laughs) well you know you need to know the it was an insult right like a famous well i don't know people like that movie no they didn't like it when it came out like uh do they not no it it does seem like it's gotten people like it more now than they did at the time yeah um he i i like i don't like spielberg bashing you know raiders of the lost ark is great um yeah, no, I'll never Spielberg bash in the sense that, like, I think that that is the ultimate in pompousness, like, it to to bash. Like, you can, I like, he yeah. had he created a particular style of movie that, like, is great. He's just, you know, like, it's like, you know, he made a lot of them. He made a lot of money. Like, if you don't like, how can you not think of him as a great director? He's just not the kind of director that snooty people like. Right? You know what kind of person bashes Spielberg? A nouveau smart person. Nouveau smart person. <laughs> you don't even have to like Spielberg ironically. Like, you know, like some people, some people right. like, you know, they're like, well, I, 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 I think. Um, I think Jaws is the best movie of the 20th century. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah. So, that's also a different kind of nouveau smart. That's. <laughs> I don't even know if that's nouveau smart. You want? We'll, we'll find out in your op-ed. Yes, that's right. My New York Times op-ed. That will launch me. Well, after all this recording, I we should wrap up. Yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we will be back next time with, uh, we believe, Paul Bloom. Just a very bad wizard.